Um, it is great to be with you on this New Year's Eve and more importantly, Lord's Day morning. We are continuing in our series in 1 Corinthians, correcting carnality in Christ's church. We have been in it, seems like for a long time. I think it, uh, we, we go back to July of 2022, maybe before that. Um, so we've been in it for a while and we're, we're getting near the end of it. Uh, two Sundays ago, we closed out chapter 15 and completed Paul's uh, section on scriptural statutes and more particularly his defense of the doctrine of resurrection. Uh, in the last section, which uh, is chapter 16 essentially, Paul makes a radical change from the doctrinal to the practical. After discussing the resurrection in great detail, he ends the letter with several exhortations about giving, about doing the Lord's work, about faithful living, and about love within Christian fellowship or within the churches. He shifts from doctrine to practical living because he understood that with this resurrection glory that's coming in the future that he described in chapter 15, he understands that with that coming, believers have great responsibilities in the here and now. If that's our future, that means we have responsibilities now. And Paul understood this probably better than anyone. He believed that the future resurrection glory of all believers should right now pattern and propel how they live. In, in other words, knowing that that is our glorious future, that should have an impact on how we're living right now. Paul understood this. Therefore, the purpose of chapter 15 was not merely to correct bad theology concerning resurrection or to make the, the greatest doctrinal teachings on resurrection in the whole Bible, because that's what chapter 15 is. It wasn't just for that, but it was to motivate believers to live sacrificial, God-glorifying lives now. J-Mac said, whenever God gives us a glimpse of the end times or of heaven or the future kingdom, it is always for the purpose of helping us live more faithfully on earth. And I believe that to be 100% true. Chapter 15 isn't just about correcting doctrine. It's about giving us correct doctrine and a correct view of the future, which should shape how we live now. And, and that's, that's, that's really the bigger point to chapter 15. If we truly believe that we are going to receive new glorified bodies and live in the coming kingdom of God forever and ever, in perfect peace, in perfect fellowship with, with, with Christ our King and with His people, then our concern should be to lay up treasures in heaven while we're here on earth now. It's the way that we should view it, Matthew 6.20. And the first practical issue that Paul discusses in chapter 16 is giving, which I think is hilarious because of God's timing. Tomorrow's New Year's Day. We begin a new year, and I said this on band the other day, but preachers usually talk about the coming year and how we should prepare for that and how we should live and, and all that. And a lot of times what that translates is messages on giving which I've never really been all that inclined to preach at this time of year because this church has always been so generous. But in God's perfect timing and humor, he has us talking about giving the day before the new year begins. So his timing is, to me, it's just perfect and hilarious. And 
there's men that probably would have chosen this passage just to talk about giving for the coming year. I didn't have to choose this passage. Uh, the Holy Spirit chose us to teach through this book to begin doing that over a year ago. So uh, it just happens that we land on this topic for this time of year, which is just incredible. God's timing is always perfect. So the first subject that he deals with is giving, and it is the first subject that we will look at. Um, please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 16. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 4. This will be a three-point sermon, and I want to pray before we get to work. Father, thank you for uh, the worship that we have engaged in thus far. We have worshiped you through prayer, through the reading of your word, through singing your word, through even the, the appointing of, of new deacons at this church, uh, through bringing our offerings to you. It's just amazing how we've been able to worship you so far. And it's all by your grace. And now we're going to worship you through the, the teaching of your word. So make us attentive. Help us to hear. And uh, if we need to be convicted on things, that's fine, Lord. We, we will humbly accept wherever you want the Spirit to convict us. And in the area of giving, I think that um, this is a, a very blessed and generous church, but um, it's not that there's room for improvement, but, you know, we're, we're not perfectly like Christ yet. We won't be until we go to be with him. And so there are things that need to be addressed. And so just if there needs to be conviction, may there that be. If there needs to be affirmation, may it be that. Whatever it is that you want to do, Lord, through this text, just teach us. We humble ourselves and sit under your teaching and your authority now, not under mine, I don't have any. The only authority I have is when I wield the word properly, but it's ultimately your authority. And so we submit to you now and ask that you teach us and that we would be good students and not just hear, but apply and do. And so we want to be not just hearers, but doers as well. And we commit the morning to you and pray in Christ's matchless name. Amen. So let's pick up where we left off on December 17th and look at our first point for this morning. This is the first thing that Paul illustrates concerning giving. Number one, the purpose of Christian giving, verse one. This isn't the only purpose for Christian giving, but it is the purpose in this text in context. And he says this in verse one. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Just stop there. The collection mentioned here was a significant project for Paul that included other Gentile churches. Uh, the context clarifies that the collection was an offering for the believers in Jerusalem. We see that in verse 3. Other New Testament passages provide a, a more complete picture of the offering and the reasons for it. For example, in Acts 24, 17, Paul says, Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. This passage along with others mentions that the contribution was basically this whole offering that he's talking about in verse 1. It was for the poor. That's what alms were given for. Alms were given to their collections that were given to the poor or even you handing money to a poor person. That's what alms is. But there were theological motivations behind it as well, namely to solidify the relationship between the Jewish and Gentile portions of the church. Uh, thereby contributing to the unity of the church. So you had a tremendous amount of poor people within the church in the first century, and most of the poor people in the church were located in Jerusalem. They were these Jewish Christian converts, these Messianic Christians, and uh, the 
church at Jerusalem was probably the poorest of all the churches, which is kind of extraordinary if you think about it. It's kind of the birthplace of all of this, and this is where the church was born on Pentecost, right there at Solomon's portico at the temple when Peter was there and all the apostles were there and the 120 were there, and you would think of all the locations during this time, why would this be the place that had the poorest Christians. And I think it's because it's where the highest intensity of persecution was early on. Remember, the church was primarily located in Jerusalem until a guy named Saul, who later became the guy who authored this book, until he started this massive uproar of persecution, and that caused all these believers to spread. Well, some stayed in Jerusalem, and uh, they were under a lot of fire there and under a lot of persecution and cut off from their families, the Christians there. And it was a, a terrible situation. And so it created a vacuum of poverty. If you were a Christian living in Jerusalem, it was worse for you than it would have been as a Christian living in Rome. It would have been way worse. And so that's why there's a concentration of poor Christians in Jerusalem. And that's why Paul is, is going around to the churches and has put together this contribution, this offering for those poor, impoverished brothers and sisters. It's essentially alms for them, but it was beyond that. It, it was meant also to be kind of a healing balm or something that God could use to bring unity. Because when somebody gives you a gift that doesn't usually incite disunity, it draws you to that person. It causes you to have affections and thanks and feelings for that person, right? We just had Christmas. I don't recall getting one bit of thanks from my kids, but <laughs> hint, uh, but you, and they get more expensive as they get into their 20s. Are they even kids anymore? No, that's a whole different sermon. We'll do that next week. Uh, but for the most part, when you give a gift, it kind of endears you to that person. And the idea is that if Gentiles collect and give to Jewish believers, it'll help to form or to bolster the bond between them that they have, because there were there were tensions. There were, um, there were sort of tensions between Gentile and non-Gentile believers. And so healing divisions and bolstering unity was really needed in Paul's day because of ethnic tensions and theological tensions. Uh, there's even examples that I could give you like we know from the scripture that Jews were hesitant to receive Gentiles into the family of God right off the bat. In fact, there was a whole group of them called the Judaizers who thought that, well, we're, we're fine with accepting non-Jews into the church, but they need to get circumcised and they need to become as Jewish as possible first. So you had that as a tension that was there. Even Peter was kind of plagued by some of the, the apostle I'm speaking of was kind of plagued by some of this thinking early on, Acts 10, 9 to 6. Uh, this is where he receives a vision and the vision is uh, he's very hesitant to go into a guy's house named Cornelius, who's a Gentile, and I, I haven't done anything unclean. I haven't eaten anything unclean. I haven't associated with these types of people is what he's basically praying to God, and God gives him this vision of a table set before him or a... Um, uh, it would be really more like a picnic blanket in front of him with all these different foods and things that he would never eat, and God says, eat, meaning go into the house of this Gentile. So Peter was hung up on this early on. And the same was true of Gentiles. Uh, they were hesitant to support their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. So there were tensions between these groups. In Romans 15, 27, Paul boasts about the generosity of the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. 
and then exhorts Roman believers to set aside their preconceived notions, any racial or ethnic biases they might have, and to participate in this collection. So, I mean, these people were very generous to one another in these Gentile churches, but when it came to supporting Jewish Christians, there was a struggle there on, on the Gentile side. He, he says this in that Romans passage, For if the Gentiles have come to share in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they ought to also be of service to them in material blessings. So Paul has to use a persuasive argument in Romans to convince these Gentile Christians that you're sharing in spiritual blessings that first came to Jews, and you should be thankful for that, and you should support your Jewish brothers and sisters in the Lord because they were hesitant to do that. So he has to say, you should do this. And so making this collection was by no means easy for Paul as he went to churches that he planted. Lastly, we see another example in Acts 6.1 where the Hellenists, which was like a Greek-raised Jewish Christian, and the Hebrews, which were normal Hebrew Christians, they were squabbling over a daily distribution. Hey, it's not fair. They're, you know, the, 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 the Gentile Christians are getting more than the Hellenist Christians and the Jewish Christians. And so there was this kind of division and strife there. And to end it and to build some unity, the apostles appointed deacons to make sure that everybody's needs were met, Acts 6.3. So just kind of painting context for you that the offering was meant to meet the needs of these Christians. It's always meant to do that. When you give, it's for that intention. But it was also intended to kind of bridge the divide between the two groups as an offering of love and acceptance from one to the other. The collection Paul spoke of in verse 1 of our text was meant to bolster unity between the churches. It, it, gave the, it gave the Gentiles also something kind of cool, and that would be a unifying project, something that all these Gentile churches could do together because, believe it or not, sometimes you can have rivalry between just regular churches. Well, this church does things their way, and that church does things their way, and over here you got some charismatics, and over here you got some Baptists that are hardcore. Over here you've got, you know, you've got the Reformers who act like they've been baptized in prune juice, they're ice cold. You can get these little divisions even between normal Protestant churches, so to speak. There wasn't Protestantism then, but you understand what I'm saying. The collection between all the churches helped these churches to unify over one goal. And that was, we're working on our part, you're working on your part, and we're all going to bring it together. So it was unifying for that as well. And then it would obviously communicate love and acceptance to the actual recipients, the church in Jerusalem. And the end result would be, hopefully, unity. It would bring unity. Uh, J. Mack again says, besides meeting the economic needs of the Jerusalem believers, Paul also wanted the collection to express the spiritual oneness of the church. Gentiles giving an offering to Jews would help strengthen the spiritual bond between those two groups. Amen. Now notice in our text how Paul does not mention the reason for the offering or its significance, but simply insists that this church and these believers in Corinth, that they proceed with the collection as the churches of Galatia had been directed to do. He doesn't say what it's for here. He doesn't describe anything about it other than you are to participate as those churches throughout Galatia are participating. And Galatia was one province. Achaia was another province where the Corinthian church was. Since he mentions the collection rather abruptly, 
really, I mean, literally goes from talking about resurrection in unbelievable, edifying detail to a collection. I mean, he switches from one to the other rapidly, very abruptly. It's almost, some even challenge the legitimacy of the placement of this text in, in the letter, but I don't challenge it at all. It's there. We should honor God. But, I mean, he does mention it abruptly with no elaboration other than to give instructions for its collection and distribution. That's it. And I think that that means, what that means is that he talks about it as if they're already familiar. So obviously Paul has had conversations with this church prior to this moment in this epistle. We know that they were corresponding with one another. We know that a letter came to him describing the spiritual position of this church and how goofed up and carnal it was. And so I, I think he's speaking to them as they are already informed. They already have an idea what's going on. And what we're seeing here is probably more of a reminder than anything else. I think verses 1, and four, one through 4 are basically Paul's reply to questions the Corinthians had in a previous letter concerning this offering. And we know that they did write him a letter according to chapter 7, verse 1 of this epistle. In his second epistle, or the se yeah, the second epistle to the Corinthians, Paul devotes considerably more time and attention to the collection, which finds its theological basis in the grace and generosity of Christ. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 and is itself an act of thanksgiving to God, 2 Corinthians 9, 12. According to theologian Gordon Fee, the collection was, quote, an active response to the grace of God that not only ministered to the needs of God's people, but also became a kind of ministry to God himself, which resulted in thanksgiving toward God and in a bond of fellowship between God's people across the empire. Speaking of the Roman Empire, I think that's a very good commentary on what's happening here, a very good analysis. Although Paul does not explicitly state the purpose of Christian giving in the text, the context does. It's primarily for the support of the saints, the church. You had impoverished believers who needed financial help so they could get food and clothing and these sorts of things. It's a dramatic change, isn't it? In, in, when the church was first birthed, all the brothers and sisters were unified. They were mostly located there. They had all of the surplus because everyone was selling their properties and doing this. They were meeting the needs. We read about this in Acts 2. This church was wealthy beyond your comprehension at first, and now it is so broke it can't pay attention. And literally, Paul is he's expressing here through the context, contextually, that it is there, the giving of the saints, of Christians, is to support the saints, the church. As I said, this isn't the only purpose of Christian giving, according to Scripture, but it is certainly the purpose here. That in unity. A Christian is obligated to support fellow believers individually and collectively. Did you know this? Yes, I think we would all agree that God places a high premium on his provision and care for ourselves. He wants us to work and he wants us to provide for our family so much so that any kind of husband or dad that doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever, it says in Scripture. So there is a major emphasis and priority on, on us caring for our own. And equal to that, there is the care for other believers. If not equal, it's right under it. And we don't, we don't think this way. We live in America where it's all about self. We live in America where everything is about self and about self-care and about self-glorification. And a lot of this is bled over into, 
into today's evangelical Protestant churches here in America that we are pursuing our best lives now. And what we ought to be pursuing is that our brothers and sisters are taken care of. And if that cost us our best life now, praise God, because it cost Jesus everything to redeem us. This is the mindset we should have. We need to be way more cognizant and aware of what's going on with our brothers and sisters, especially in our own congregations. We should not allow anyone in our congregation to go without. If, if they, they cannot make ends meet, it is our responsibility to collect for them. Just as Paul was doing for this church in Jerusalem. This is a, a maybe a not such a difficult thing for us to swallow, but it doesn't seem like that's how it should be. And that's Americanism that's bled into our thinking. We are obligated to support our fellow brothers and sisters. In fact, the church's first financial responsibility is to invest in its own life, to invest in its own people. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 5, and chapter 9, verses 12 to 15. Obviously, Philippians 4, 14 to 16. The church's second responsibility, financial responsibility, first is to take care of its own. Secondly, it is to help meet the needs of other biblical churches, like we see right here in verse 1. The churches in Galatia were collecting for the church in Jerusalem. They weren't collecting to get larger screens. They weren't collecting to get faster donkeys. They weren't collecting to get something other than sand as a floor. They weren't collecting for aesthetics. They weren't collecting for twirling lights and smoke. They weren't collecting for advanced technology. I'm not, I don't really have a problem with advanced technology if it helps us get the gospel out there, but... What these churches were collecting for was to directly benefit the brothers and sisters, even to put food on the table. Some have said that if churches stepped up and did what Paul is telling them to do here and in other places, there would be no welfare system in this country. I believe it. I believe it. No brother or sister would go without. They would never spend a night hungry if we would do our job. It's that simple. But we are so self-saturated, so self-actualized, so self-focused. I know this. I eat ice cream every night. I mean, I, 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 I care about me. Well, my wife says I don't because I eat uh, terribly. Uh, but for the most part, it's about me and my comfort. I have to confess this to you. And, and the thought of somebody in our, our own body going without. And it, here's the fact of the matter. God has so blessed us to the point that even if we were to live sacrificially and to really start caring for each other at a deeper level spiritually and even temporally, none of us would starve to death. We'd just have maybe less nights eating out or whatever it is. There's nobody in this room that, that, you know, that would be impoverished by caring for someone who's impoverished. There's enough abundance here to do it. The question is, are we willing to release it and let it go? Maybe after this sermon, we will be. But I have to admit, this has been a very generous church. We just raised thousands of dollars for two destitute families for Christmas. And so, you know, I'm not beating you up. I'm, I'm kind of beating me up because I think I could go further. And maybe you can too, but let's, let's continue in this. Supporting the saints is the primary purpose of Christian giving, according to verse 1, with the end result of building unity in the church and ultimately bringing thanksgiving to God. Okay? 
if you feed a hungry believer, they're going to thank God for you. There's the thanksgiving. This is what happens. So the first point is very simple. Christian giving, it really has to do with meeting needs. Number two, let's move to the second point. Number two, the principles. First we have the purpose. Now we have the principles of Christian giving in verse two. Here's what Paul says. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. In this verse, Paul states or implies a number of principles concerning Christian giving, including the period and the participants, the place, and the proportion, four Ps. These principles form a good basis for Christian giving in any age. It, it doesn't matter when, for the first century or now. It's all applicable. The first principle has to do with the most appropriate period for giving. It is weekly. On the first day of every week. This is what Paul says. Now, right now you're thinking, but I get paid once a month. Fine. This isn't legalism. This isn't like mosaic law. You have to give every week. But he's saying that's the most appropriate period to do it. And he has a number of reasons for why. Firstly, what this shows is that the church met on Sundays for worship. It does. Weekly. The church met every Sunday, the day the Lord was raised. That's the Sabbath. The Sabbath was typically Saturday, but Sunday is Resurrection Day. Every Sunday is Resurrection Day, so to speak. And so we meet on the first day of the week, he says here. So it establishes when the church met regularly for corporate worship. And then it also includes in it the regular giving of money, right? You store up and give on that first day of every week, which would be Sunday. This is what Paul is saying here. Uh, I, I like J. Max commentary here as well. I'm quoting him quite a bit today. It's probably his sermon. Uh, he says, Paul was not prescribing a legalistic requirement of parceling out our money so that we can be sure to have something to put in the offering plate every Sunday. That's the first thought that we have. I get paid once a month. I better figure out how to do this, right? That's not the point. The point is that giving is part of worship and fellowship. And even when we have nothing to give on a particular Sunday, we should be sensitive to the needs of the church and to our part in meeting them. Okay, so your payday, pension, whatever it is, retirement, Social Security, maybe you get that once a month and it's more convenient to give once a month. Paul's saying don't, you don't necessarily have to change that. But because you're giving once a month rather than every week, whether it be four weeks or five, you still need to be considerate and aware of the needs of the church. This is what he's saying. Now, I, I would, I, why does Paul say weekly here? Well, he's got his reasons. He doesn't list them here. I think there's some benefits to weekly giving, things that, that I'm aware of. Maybe this is what he was inferring or implying. And that would be these things. A, giving reminds us of the gospel. If we give each week, we will be reminded of the gospel each week. This is always a good thing. Amen? Amen. You know, when you bring your gift to the Lord, whether it be weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, uh, whatever, seasonally, heaven forbid, you don't want to wait that long. But when you do it, there is a sense of what Christ has done for you in the back of your mind. That's the gospel. And so when we give, we're giving in response to what's been given to us. Everything we do is in response to what's been done for us. If you're giving each week, then you're being reminded in that moment, every time you walk over to that offering box or put it in the basket, I am remembering what has been given to me and I'm giving a portion of it back. I'm remembering the gospel. So this is huge and this is good. 
We need to hear the gospel every day, Martin Luther said. Why? Because we forget it. B, it allows us to more frequently demonstrate that our faith is in Christ and not in our bank accounts and possessions. Amen? If you're giving each week, you are, you are demonstrating that reliance on Christ. And I think that would be demonstrated more so, not just in frequency, but in how much you give. If you give very little, maybe you have very little given, that's fine, but maybe you're not demonstrating ultimate trust in him if you give very little in comparison to your, you know, how you've prospered, as Paul says. But for the most part, when you go and give, you're reflecting that reliance. You're putting it in there saying, I trust you with my finances. I trust you with my life. I trust you with food on my table. I trust you with paying my bills. So you get to demonstrate that more frequently. C, obviously it can raise our sensitivity to money and the stewardship of it. If you're giving more frequently, you're more frequently reminded of your money and how you're to govern and steward it because everything is given to us. We're stewards. Nothing. We own nothing. It's all given to us in a sense on loan to be managed. And we're to give some back to the Lord and to take care of our brothers and sisters and meet our own financial needs and all that. So this helps to raise sensitivity to it because you're doing it more frequently. And then D, and this is a big one, it makes funds more readily available to the church so that it can pay bills and meet any needs in the congregation that might arise. Okay, if we give only periodically, that means their money is not in the account and there might arise a need in the church that we need to meet, we need to pay someone's bill, we need to put food on their table, but because everyone is doing this periodic giving, we don't have it there. So weekly giving is far more consistent, keeps money in the account, and allows us to show more benevolence, or at least to be prepared for it. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. These are logical, rational reasons. I think I could probably make a biblical argument for them, but they're there. Now all of you are saying, now I gotta figure out how to give once a week. Let you determine that between you and the Lord. You know, if you get paid a certain way, that's fine. But just be cognizant and mindful of these things. There was a time where, you know, and, and I've done this myself, where, you know, you, you would give less frequently. Maybe you would give more at a certain time rather than more frequently. And praise God for you that you would do that. I, I'm thankful. But that can also increase the difficulty of meeting needs in the here and now because we haven't received that money. We have to wait till the end of the month. So... Just be thoughtful about these things. Remember the purpose of your giving, primarily to meet the inside needs here in this body. And so if we do it more consistently, more readily, the money is more readily available to meet needs. So just be prayerful about that. So that, that was the first principle. It has to do with the period. The second principle has to do with every believer participating this, this is, there's a misconception concerning this. Some feel that, you know, since they have very little, uh, they don't have to give. Wrong. Tell that to the widow who gave everything she had. It's a wrong way of thinking. Equally a wrong way of thinking of those who have very much to give very little. That's also another wrong way of thinking. But we want to correct those misconceptions and that bad theology. Paul used the all-inclusive phrase, each of you. He didn't say some of you. Each of you, the whole body, every believer is a steward of whatever the Lord has given to them, no matter how little it may be, in economic terms. When Jesus observed different people putting their offerings in the temple treasury, he did not dissuade the widow from putting in two small copper coins, which basically amounted to one cent. 
nor did he chide the temple officials for accepting it. Instead, he used her generosity as a model of sacrificial giving. He called his disciples over to him and said this, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. What a shocking statement because there were some people dropping in some serious coin because they were loaded. And he's saying she gave more than all of them. And he says, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Mark 12, 43 to 44. That's an incredible statement by him. To say that this poor widow who put in something directly from her heart that would be so sacrificial that it, it would potentially put her in jeopardy, although she's trusting the Lord, that she gave more than Trump who walked up and dropped in a bank account. I mean, it, it, because what is, how is giving measured by the Lord? It's not by how much you give, it's the intent behind it. It's the heart behind it. I mean, you could be wealthy and give a ton of money and have no heart behind it, and you're just giving money. How is that worship? You could be impoverished. You could have a, a, a stringy budget, and you, you just can't really afford much. Do all your shopping at Winco, praise the Lord. Right? You just, you know, or Walmart, heaven forbid, they just need to get more checkers. Hello? They said they were closing for Christmas. That gave the two checkers the time off with their families. I saw that as a meme. It's hilarious. I thought it was funny. Apparently, Philip Rogers does not because he's staring at me. <laughs> now he does. Uh, but seriously, it, it, you know, if a person is kind of like impoverished and they give a lot because they love the Lord and trust him, that is more meaningful and has more spiritual depth than someone who's giving a lot out of just abundance. And I think in America, we typically have been shaped and formed and taught to give out of abundance rather than sacrificially. When's the last time we made an offering that actually hurt? That, that put us in a situation where we really had to trust the Lord for something. That's what the widow did. And Jesus commends her over all these wealthy people. It's just something to ponder. It's something to think about. Every believer is a steward and should participate in giving regardless of their financial situation. And all such giving is to be sacrificial and done in love for God and love for his people. So those are the participants. It's everybody. Everybody can participate. Even if you have very little, you can still put something in in faith. The third principle has to do with the place of giving. This is another one where there's many misconceptions. Well, I support this missions group, and I support this parachurch ministry, and I support the Billy Graham crusade, and I support this, and I support that. Through all my years as a pastor, going on 17 now, which is insane for me to think about that. How did you get me this far, Lord? I've heard it all. I've seen it all. I, I, we've had people that have been part of our church through the years that, you know, some unfortunately aren't here any longer, but they, they were supporting 20 different things. And, and it's just, there is a place, a primary place to give, and it is the church, right? It is to the church. The church is the primary place to give, and, and it is through the church that the church is to give to others, to support other ministries, not us as individuals. We support our local churches. Local churches can support those organizations as long as it makes sense. But you're supposed to give primarily to your church. This is a really bizarre thought, but even pagans, and I don't say that word with any derision. It's just a term that was used for people back in those days that worshiped all these idols and false gods. But even the ancient pagans understood this to a degree. 
And certainly the ancient Jews did. The treasuries back in antiquity during these days, for pagans and Jews alike, were the religious temples. Those were the banks. That's where all the treasure was kept. That was the Fort Knox in those days. They didn't have banks yet. And so people would keep their money in the religious temples. And the Jews would do it at the temple. The Jews would do it at their synagogues. The pagans would do it at their temples of Aphrodite and these sorts of things. So there was a connection between religion and the temples and where treasure was stored and kept. In fact, uh, the treasuries in many Greek temples also served as banks in which the citizens kept their personal money and other valuables for safekeeping. If you had, you know, some, some gold that you wanted to store somewhere, you felt that it was safer uh, than at your house that didn't have a door, right? You know, I have, a, I, have a, I have a curtain for a door, whatever they had back then. I guess some of them had doors, but you just felt like it's not safe to keep this thing here, and you would take it down to the temple where it would be safe. Maybe the temple of Aphrodite or Zeus or someone else. The phrase, put aside and save, it carries this exact same idea from Paul. Isn't that interesting that he's borrowing from culture? Paul is saying that when we gather together for weekly worship and present our offerings to the Lord, we are placing these gifts in the Lord's treasury, the church. That's the storehouse of the Lord where he keeps treasure to be used for his purposes, the church. Isn't that an amazing way to think? It's exactly what Paul is saying here. Now, it is the responsibility of church leaders, the elders, and, and in most cases, a lot of deacons here, too, in a church, to take these offerings and to put something aside and to store it up, as Paul says here, so the church can invest in itself and abroad. Parachurch ministries, missionary organizations, Christian schools and universities, they can all be great. Uh, the universities are becoming less great because they're making theological sacrifices, but for the most part, these extended non-church but extra you know christian ministries they can be good things but they are not the lord's treasury they're not the church is the lord's treasury so and this is something that i've understood since day one not praising myself just bewildered by christians that i've met through the years who are supporting just about everything but their local body and how can they support their local body when all of their hard-earned gifts that they're giving to the Lord are spread so thinly? The body of Christ, individual bodies, churches, are the repository, are the treasury of the Lord. This is where you firstly invest. This is what Paul is saying. This is why we should give firstly and primarily to our churches. We are to give to our local body so that it can meet its own needs and then help others when opportunities arise, right? Paul isn't calling upon individual Christians to put together an offering. Biff, I want you to do this, you know, back to the future. Scooby-Doo, I want you to do this. Shaggy and Velma, I want you to do this. He's not talking about individuals supporting this, this, this ministry endeavor. He is presenting it and calling upon churches to do it because it's not up to us to figure out where to put our money. We're told where to do it right here to our churches. And then it's up to churches to figure out where to invest it. And they better take care of their own first and then go out from there. This is a, is this not a striking way to think? 
Is this butting up against any of your thinking so far? It is mine. It did when I, I kind of understood this, but at the same time. The place of giving is the church, first and foremost. It's always the church. It's always been this way, first and foremost. Uh, if a believer spends his or her entire life, listen to this. I'm, this is an encouragement to you, okay? Uh, if a believer spends his or her entire life in Christ, not the entire life because there was a time where we weren't believers, but from the moment of our conversion, we're now walking with Christ. From that moment until they breathe their last breath, if a Christian were to spend their entire life in Christ supporting their local church and nothing else, God would be thoroughly pleased with them. He's not going to say to you when you stand before Christ, why didn't you support the Billy Graham Crusades and only your church? Why did you support the abortion thing down the street, not, you know, the clinic where they try to say, I mean, why did, why did you only support your church? Now, I'm not trying to dissuade you from supporting anything else. I'm just saying that God will never be displeased with you if you spent your whole faith, time, life supporting your church. It's what he wants you to do. Let the churches figure out who to support. If they want to team with the Teen Pregnancy Center, if they want to team with the gospel mission down the street. We're, we're not supposed to do that on our own. We're not supposed to act as individuals. We are part of a collective, like the Borg, but way less scary. Right? Some of you know the Star Trek reference, right? I almost said Star Wars reference, and I know Jared would have had words with me after the service <laughs> because I called it an at-at one day, and that was it. Remember that? Oh, he was fired up. Yeah, but it's the wrong way. It's an AT-AT. I don't, whatever. It's AT&T. I don't know. It's a phone service for crying out loud. I don't know the difference. You're, you're not going to displease God by supporting your church and not going out of your way to support everything else in the world. And I think sometimes some churches are, are, are so busy supporting so many things that believers of those churches, members of those churches become convinced that they've got to support all these things, even at an individual level. Now, I, I, I'm perfectly fine with the church supporting a whole bunch of stuff, but I'm not perfectly fine with us believers doing it on our own and depleting the treasury of the Lord. There's only one treasury. It's the temple. Well, really, it's the temple, and that's the people of God, but it's the collection of saints. This little small expression of the body of Christ, a smaller expression is a, a version or a piece of God's treasury. Why, why will God not be displeased if all you've ever supported was your local church? Because you've done exactly what Paul is telling you to do here and with what Scripture says in other places. Now, I'm not encouraging us to never hand a hot dog to a homeless person because now you're thinking, I don't have to pay attention to that lady and her six kids at Costco. You know who I'm talking about? I see her there all the time. There's a sign right above her that says, no panhandling. And I'm usually like, no panhandling. Should probably try to meet her need maybe. But I'm not suggesting that you cannot hand a homeless person a hot dog or show, I mean, to show kindness to the poor is to lend to the Lord. Proverbs 19, 17, right? Do it. But this and other expressions of generosity should never impact your normal, regular giving to the treasury of the Lord, which is your church. These things would all be done in addition to that, not in place of those things. So if you want to purchase a hot dog launcher and strafe the south side, go ahead. But don't say to yourself, I'm going to do this instead of give to the church for the next month. 
Now you're robbing the treasury to do that. Find a way to sacrifice and do them both. That is what is pleasing to the Lord. Amen? All right. We had the place. Uh, we've talked about the place. That is the church. The fourth principle has to do with proportion. Paul's exhortation is completely discretionary for a Christian to give as he may prosper. Isn't that nice? Now, there's much debate among believers as to how much of our income should be given to the Lord's work, right? This is something that we're always going back and forth with. A common traditional answer has been, for as long as I can remember, and way beyond that, it'd be 10%. And that's based on the misunderstanding, the nature and purpose of the Old Testament tithe, okay? Tithe means tenth. And, and some people say for Christians, they should start at a tenth or a tithe and go up from there. That'd be 10% of your net income before you're taxed. And so that's the thinking there. And that's a common answer to that question. How much should I give? Well, 10% is a good place to start. And then sometimes these people that have that theology, they'll maybe point to Abraham who gave Melchizedek, who's a fantastic, phenomenal and mysterious person in, in the Old Testament, they'll, they see Abraham giving him 10% of everything he owned, Genesis 14, 18 to 19. And so they'll say, well, you know, you look, look how, how do we know to give 10%? Well, we, we look at what Abraham gave to Melchizedek. Or maybe they'll point to Jacob who promised to give a full 10th to God if God would be with him and not depart from him at all, which was a silly thing to ask because God never leaves his people, but he thought maybe God could leave. He also said, I'll give 10% if you stay with me. I'll give 10% if you meet all my basic needs, continue to provide for me. And, and if you can even get me safely to my father's house, 10% is yours, Lord. I'm sure the Lord up there was going, oh, great. I'll do all those things for you for that. I was going to do them whether you give or not. And, and to, to, for me to provide all of that for you during these difficult times, for you to only offer 10%, hmm. So I think Jacob thought he was doing something really special for the Lord. When the Lord could have replied very easily, I own it all. I don't know what you're talking about here. How about if I give you 10% and I keep 90? <laughs> it's Genesis 28, 20 to 22. They'll also point to Moses since he prescribed a 10% tithe in the Mosaic Law. Leviticus 27, verse 30. So people that hold this tithe position, they'll point to those scriptures and those people. But a more careful analysis of the Old Testament shows that 10% was really nothing more than an early starting point and that this number actually climbed all the way up to roughly 23%. Under the Old Covenant, giving was more like a tax. I suppose the spirit of Newsom was alive and well in the ancient world. And it's taxing everything. I mean, you know, you looked at me. There's a 5% tax on you looking at me. Now, there was in Scripture in the Old Testament, we see something called a free will offering at that time. But even it was regulated by God's law, by God's standards, the Mosaic law, Leviticus 22, 21. So you could give a free will offering as long as you did it like this. <laughs> right? Everything in the Old Testament in terms of giving and many other things was prescribed. From giving to what you ate to what you wore. Hmm? No patches, ladies. I know, you can, I know you can sew, but you can't put that on there. That's a pagan patch. You can't have shellfish. Some of you are like rejoicing. I know Valerie is because shrimp are the roaches of the sea. That's what she's said. But I happen to like shrimp and lobster. I mean, everything was prescribed for you. I mean, just stop and think about that. When you really stop and ponder 
all that was required of you as a Jew from antiquity, I become very thankful for Jesus. Are you kidding me? Because of him, I can eat shrimp. In fact, I can go to the all-you-can-eat buffet and put Red Lobster out of business that night. They're like, our reserves are going down. We're running out of shrimp. The ocean called. You're running out of shrimp. Jesus mediates a much better covenant, says the author of Hebrews. Hebrews 8, 6. It's a covenant of grace, not of rules and law. So, when well-intentioned pastors and parishioners drop the old 10% bomb on us, we can reply with, well, it's really you trust in Jesus? If you trust in Jesus, you're under a new and better covenant. It's in accordance with your own prosperity and with a cheerful heart that you give. It's not about percentages. Amen? 23% would literally be a much more accurate number. So next time somebody says, hey, you're supposed to give 10%, say, actually, you're supposed to give 23%. But are you in Christ? Okay. A Christian's giving does, there aren't much connections between it today and what ancient Israel, but there are some in a way. It does correspond to that of ancient Israel in some ways. Not in terms of percentages, but in other ways, such as we are required to give taxes to support the government under which we live. Romans 13, 6, those taxes have no end. Just as the Israelites were to give tithes to support the divinely ordered system under which they lived, Matthew 17, 24 to 27, and obviously chapter 22, verses 15 to 21. So firstly, we have to pay taxes. That's part of our giving so our government can not do its job. And we are to give to the Lord whatever we purpose in our hearts, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Just as the Israelites gave out of their hearts to the Lord. Exodus 25, 1 and 2. So those are the connections. We give joyfully and cheerfully, and we have to pay Taxes. At the end of verse 2, Paul says that all of these things should be done in advance so that when he comes to visit toward the end of fall, verse 6, because he says, maybe I'll spend the winter with you, the Corinthians portion of the collection could be ready to go. So he's telling them to plan for this collection, plan for this giving. Don't raise it when I show up, have it ready to go. The last thing Paul wanted to do is to make a last minute rushed appeal to solicit funds when he arrived in Corinth. He did not want to pressure these brothers and sisters, but desires that they respond freely to the work of God's grace in their lives. This is why he encouraged them to plan and to be ready for his return. Now, that is such an important aspect of giving. You know, sometimes churches will place a heavy burden on their people because they're trying to raise funds to do something. And then, then they end up guilting and shaming their people into giving, which makes those offerings null and void of worship. It's now just money. It's not an act of worship because you have to give with a heart of love and gratitude to the Lord and with cheer. And don't be like some of those people out there that, you know, I've heard this one too through the years. They, they say that, well, we're not required to give a tithe, amen. We're not required to give a whole lot like the ancient Israelites, amen. Whatever you want to call it, fine. But they also think that to give cheerfully, they'll say this, I can give, and maybe they're a person of means, they usually are when they do this, I can give very little cheerfully. <laughs> no, that is the, that's stinking thinking, man. Don't think like that. 
Don't think like that. That's not God-centered, gospel-saturated cheer. That's flesh cheer, right? Don't think that cheerfully means I can give very little, especially if you have a lot. Don't think like that. Christ gave you everything. So don't think like that. Don't think like that. Paul doesn't want to compulse or to pressure these people into giving at all. And that's why he's writing to them in advance, prepare for this, plan for this. The churches at Galatia have been planning for this. The churches up in Rome have been planning for this and, and saving. And I want you to do the same thing so that when I come, it's ready to go. I don't want to come up there and say, oh, my goodness, you didn't do this. We need to get something together tonight because I'm leaving tomorrow. And then all of a sudden, nobody's given for the right reason. It's all pressure and compulsion. Nobody's reflecting on what Christ has done for them. They're just giving because Paul said so. And you never want to give because your pastor or an apostle like him told you to. You want to give out of the sincerity of your own heart, with your own convictions, with love in your heart. You want to do that, okay? All right, that's number two. Number three, lastly, we have the protection of Christian giving, the protection of Christian giving. We see this in verses three and four. This is uh, really interesting here. And he says this after, or he says, and when I arrive, when I come to you, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. That's the end of our text. Okay, bottom line, those who give to the Lord's work have a right to expect that their gifts are used legitimately and wisely, a.k.a. that they are protected, okay? Have you ever been, because our church is only 10, 11 years old now, going on, are we going on 12 years, I think? We're only 12 years old. All of us came from somewhere else, and I don't say this to condemn other churches, but have you ever been part of anything or any other church in the past where you didn't feel that your hard-earned sacrificial gifts were being protected. Maybe they were being squandered on things that, I don't know why they keep buying all this stuff. Did you ever feel like that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It can feel like that sometimes. And I say that everyone who gives, according to what Paul's saying here, should know that what they're giving is, is protected. It's the treasury of the Lord. You can't get within like a quarter mile of Fort Knox. Okay? What you give to the Lord's treasury should be protected by those who are entrusted with protecting it. And protection means using it wisely and for its direct and primary purposes. Paul, Paul does, let me see here. I miss a page. No. Paul expected the Corinthians to write a return letter acknowledging his teachings and such. Okay, in other words, what I'm saying is I'm, I'm framing something so you can understand. But when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he expected a letter response from the church to come back to him. In verse 3, he instructs them to list some accredited or trustworthy individuals that will carry their gift or portion of the collection to Jerusalem. Now you see why. They, they, he's not saying appoint people. Take the guys that you've already, that you know, that you're going to write me about. You're going to appoint somebody per se, but tell me who they are. And when I come, I'll make sure they get over there is what he's saying. So there's some kind of a thing here that he's asking for. You need to pick some guys to do this. 
Okay, point being, it is incumbent upon every church to entrust its property and funds to godly and responsible men. That's the parallel. Men that you accredited, men that you approved of to carry your gift, men that you trust to carry it. That's what he's saying. When you write to me, you'll tell me who they are and we'll make sure they get there. That's what he's saying. And the parallel is that there should be men in the church that are trustworthy to handle these things. Not just the transference of a gift to another church, but just the management of it and the stewardship of it in the church. Early on, the gifts of the early Christians were entrusted to the apostles, Acts 4.35. As their responsibilities grew, however, the apostles needed to be relieved of, of, of the job of dispersing funds for such things as feeding the poor widows and all that. And... They advised the full number of disciples to pick out from among them seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom the elders or whom the apostles would therefore appoint to that duty. Acts chapter 6, verses 2 to 3. The qualifications of those men who were to handle those finances and deal with those gifts and deal with the disbursement of those gifts were not in any way financial. They didn't have to be the leader of some financial institution. They were not commercial in any way. They were moral and spiritual. But we have a banker at our church. Well, that doesn't mean anything. Is that banker a godly man? Then that's what matters. J-Max says again, God's funds should only be put in the hands of a church's most godly men who will prayerfully and in the energy of the Holy Spirit supervise its use as priests who present the offerings of the people of God. The godly men that were picked and appointed became the church's initial deacons, mentioned this earlier. Acts 6, 5 to 6. The first and most notable was Stephen. His sermon in Acts 7, 2 to 53 is probably one of the greatest sermons you'll ever read in Scripture. It was so penetrating and convicting, the Jews actually killed him for it. That's a pretty good message when after you get done preaching, you get killed. I think the audience got the point. And with the approval of Saul, who was there, who later became Paul, he was part of that, sadly, and he regretted that. Incredibly, the very first man to be appointed to the position of deacon who would actually oversee some of these finances also became the very first martyr of the church, Acts 7.54 to chapter 8, verse 1. Ultimately, elders and deacons are to be selected from among the godliest men in a church since they bear the responsibility of caring for the flock of God and protecting and dispersing the church's resources. 1 Peter 5, 2-3, Acts 6, 1-6. 1 Timothy 3, 4-5 says that a prospective elder must be, he must be able to manage his own household well. Firstly, that's like a, prime, that's a, a preliminary thing or a prerequisite. And it goes on to say, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how is he going to care for God's church? Part of that is the financial care. He has to be, show that he can take care of his household and pay and manage the finances and pay the bills and do these sorts of things. In fact, the exact same requirement is applied to prospective deacons a little further down in 1 Tim 3.12. Godly men who meet this and several other requirements are to be uh, I think put before the congregation, they're to be accredited and then approved. Once approved, they are to be appointed to their positions by the existing elders. And then, and only then, shall they be entrusted with the treasury portion of the Lord's temple, the church. When a church follows these simple biblical guidelines, those who give to the Lord's work can do so confidently because they will know that the gifts uh, that they have been giving will be protected and employed legitimately and wisely. 
That's the whole point. And that's the idea that Paul is conveying in verse 3. In verse 4, Paul makes a rather mind-boggling statement. This is, this is really crazy. Uh, the phrase, if it seems advisable that I should go also, is capable of, I think, several, but primarily two different interpretations. Some theologians think Paul was saying that he would accompany the Corinthians' gift and those men that were appointed to that or accredited to that. He would, uh, he would uh, go with them to Jerusalem only if his circumstances allowed it. And sometimes the Holy Spirit changed things up on Paul. He wanted to go up here, and the Spirit blocked that, and he had to go down here. And sometimes he was in jail. Sometimes he was shipwrecked. I mean, the guy did not have his best life now, so to speak. Of course, it was his best life now, but... For the most part, some say, well, he's just, he's, he's trying to not presume upon the Lord. He's saying, look, if and when I get there, if the circumstances are aligned, if everything's cool, I'll go too. Some say that's what he's saying. And I call that the benign view because it sounds pretty harmless. Other theologians think that Paul was saying that he would accompany the Corinthians' gift and, and those deliverers of it to Jerusalem only if it turned out to be an offering that would indicate true generosity and that would not be that he would not be personally embarrassed to be associated with it's time to cringe hmm? that's actually j max view that's the view of mark taylor and many other great theologians many other solid theologians theologians and i think it's it feels a bit cringy i i call it the cringy view because it definitely sounds kind of cringy like you're going to go with them only if it's what you perceive or call a good, generous gift. You're not going to go if it doesn't meet your standards, your requirements. I mean, doesn't that sound, that doesn't sound cringy to you? <laughs> okay, it, it, it <laughs> was it actually cringy for an apostle such as Paul to critique the monetary gift of a church or even that of an individual Christian, is that a place where the authority in the church, where the jurisdiction stops and they can't have any say or opinion about what we give? Because in order for that to be the cringy view, that's the theology that you have to hold. Well, the Bible says I'm not supposed to let my left hand know what my right hand is doing. And then, okay, so if that's me, I'm not supposed to be that involved with it or whatever or critical of it, then certainly a pastor or back then an apostle has no jurisdiction there. That's the kind of thinking that leads us to think that it's cringy for Paul to say such a thing. Um, no, it's not cringy. It, it was Paul's responsibility. And it's the responsibility of every pastor. It's actually part, it was actually part of Paul's duty since he was charged with caring for the flock of God, which includes the giving of the flock. Since pastors are in succession to the apostles, this responsibility now falls on them. Pastors are to critique, not in an ungodly way, not in a laughing way, not in a mocking way, but they are to critique and assess what their sheep give for a number of reasons. First and foremost, it has to do with protection because our giving reflects what we cherish in our hearts. Luke 12, 34. Okay, what we give, it reflects what we love most here. And if we give very little, then we love something other than the Lord. 
That's a fact. And how can an elder deacon care for the flock and make sure that's not happening, which is a form of idolatry, if he's not aware of what people are giving? Also, there's another danger. The love of money is the root of what? All kinds of evil. And sometimes you can tell how well or how much somebody loves money by how they give. 1 Tim 6.10. Giving, I would say no giving, which happens sadly. No giving reveals that there is a problem with a person's faith. Did you hear me? No giving reveals that there is a problem with that person's faith. There's something dysfunctional. Low giving or giving that is not in proportion to one's income, because that's what Paul is driving at, however God prosper you, prospers you, that reveals the same thing as the no givers. There's something wrong with your faith. There's a defect there. You're not trusting the Lord. You're trusting in your finances. How can a pastor disciple no-givers and or low-givers if he is not permitted to critique and assess what they give? And when I say critique, I don't mean in a mocking way. I say with precision and love in his heart. How can he commend and thank generous givers if he has no access to these records? Huh? How can he say thanks? Throughout my time as a pastor, which is, like I said, approaching 17 years, there have been many times where I actually felt embarrassed and even a bit ashamed by the low giving of believers that I knew had significant means. It was an embarrassment to me when I would look at the giving. And I don't look at the giving that much. In fact, the elders shielded me from that for years. But I've since said I don't want to do that anymore because how can I disciple people if I'm not aware of what they're doing? what they're giving. But there have been times where you look at the offering of somebody that you know makes a lot of money, more than most of us here, and, you, and you, this is embarrassing. Why would they give so little? And I should have the right to be able to ask that question, not because, you know, hey, give us your money, because that's what we think, but because is there, did you get laid off? Are you giving to every other ministry in the world except here? I mean, I need to find out reasons why so I can help disciple and shepherd you. But there have been times where I've been embarrassed by the giving of people here and, and even ashamed. I thought maybe I'm failing them. Maybe I'm failing them. Have I not preached the gospel clear enough over the years? Because I think the more you preach the gospel and immerse people in the finished work of Christ, the more generous they'll become. And sometimes that's in the reverse with some people. And it's just embarrassing. It's tough to get your mind around. And you never want to just presume, but you want to ask questions first because there could be financial hardship that you're not aware of. Maybe they've gotten themselves entangled in debt and just can't get, who knows, there's reasons. But if you don't know, how can you help? And if it's just blatant disregard for the things of God and they're just being a miser and selfish, how can you challenge that in love? I think this is Paul's thinking or what he was hinting at in verse 4. He planted the Corinthian church. Although it had many good teachers, it was in a sense his flock. He called them his workmanship in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 9.1. If the Corinthians presented a gift that did not appear sacrificial nor generous, 
it would not only sadden Paul because he would see that he would see it as their failure to comprehend what they have in the gospel, but it would embarrass him before his colleagues in Jerusalem. Now that's the only part that seems cringy, but hold on a second. Was it what was would he be embarrassed because maybe his identity was kind of tied up in this body that he was kind of drawing pride from them? I mean, heavens no. This man's identity was in Christ. Maybe you're not aware of this. It's be, he would have been embarrassed by his colleagues if it was such a low offering because of this. Because he was always boasting about this church. Second Corinthians 7.11, chapter 8, verse 24, chapter 9, verse 2. Boasting and boasting and boasting about the love and generosity and sincerity of this body. If this is what he's been telling the other apostles and others, including Timothy, and then he shows up with a collection that they've been doing for six months, and it's a buck 19, how does that affirm his boasting? He'll be embarrassed. Would you blame him? No. Paul is simply saying that if it falls short of what you know you should give, I may not accompany it because I'd like to spare myself the embarrassment of all the, the last 18 months or so of boasting about what the Lord is doing in your, in your body. I just don't want to be there for that. And I agree 100% with him. I wouldn't accompany a gift like that. I would go there and, 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 and say, I'm so sorry that this body was enraptured with itself. And we already know the Corinthians were like that. We have talked about them for over a year now. And after we've learned about them and all the carnality, it doesn't seem logically to me that they were going to give much of a gift because they were so enraptured with their dumb selves. This is the meaning here. This is what he means. I'll go, but it's got to be worth it because I don't want to be hung out to dry and to look like a complete moron for boasting about you. Because there were things in this church that were boastworthy. Even though it had all its trouble, there was a remnant there that was faithful. There always is. And the truth is, God, God knows what we give and so do elders and probably now deacons, maybe, if that's where we put them. The anonymity, we enjoy as citizens of a free country, which is losing its freedoms, but we do enjoy that separation and privacy. It's not supposed to carry over into the body of Christ. The body of Christ is like a family. It's likened to that over and over in the New Testament. In other words, we're supposed to be in each other's business to some degree or at some level. Because that's how accountability is achieved, that's how burdens are shared, and so on and so forth. So don't think to yourself that this is a subject that's off limits for your pastors, for your elders. If it wasn't off limits for Paul, we're in succession to them. It's not off limits for us. And we need to look at it with a careful eye to make sure that none of us are getting tripped up into this carnal worldly thinking or we've been deceived by the devil. In closing, we have 
learned many important truths this morning, especially the period, participants, place, and proportion of Christian giving. That's what we've looked at. And this is the time of year when we revisit our budgets and pray about our giving for the coming year. And I think we should just apply what we've learned today to, to that process as we ponder and prayer, prayerfully consider what we're going to do in 2024. I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit will continue to work in our hearts and bring us to an even deeper trust in Christ that will free us to be even more sacrificial and generous in 2024. But first, the elders and I would like to thank you for supporting the Lord's work here in 2023 and all the years before that. Thank you. And I'll close with a wonderful quote and reminder from the late, great Jerry Bridges. He said this, should be in your bulletin, I believe. We are responsible for living the Christian life. We are responsible for pursuing holiness. We are responsible for worshiping God and serving him. And I would just add to that in the service of him is the giving and all that, because that's one way that we serve him and serve one another. And he says, but the resources for that, for all these things are outside of ourselves so that we are dependent upon Christ Jesus. That's such a wonderful way to tie all this together. You have what you have because of Christ. Ponder how you can release some of that in 2024 as you trust him. And we do have visitors here today. I'm so glad you're with us today. And you think about these things for when you go back home to your church and anyone else who's visiting. The, the principles can be applied. It doesn't matter what body you're with. Amen?